Hi. We talk about it all the time, but our Patreon at patreon.com slash DuckVTV uh, goes a long way toward helping us do this kind of show. Uh, it supports a bunch of different shows, but this show initially was a stretch goal on that. Uh, so if you have the time or you have a couple of extra bucks to throw around, go to patreon.com slash DuckVTV and consider throwing them our way. Thank you. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King. Uh, here we are in this kind of in-between seasons space. My name is Cole Ross, and today I am joined by Autumn Greer. Delighted to be here and looking forward to getting getting interstitial with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're joining me here to talk about Bag of Bones, uh, one of these books that has uh, kind of a loose association with the Dark Tower. Uh, and we'll get to those connections there. Um, Autumn, so first off, uh, you're delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, what made you want to hop on to talk about Bag of Bones? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fast reader. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I can commit to doing just knocking out an entire book. So uh, I'd, yeah. I'd love to be on these just because, you know, I, I got plenty of time at the gym. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for something more to read. I've only read Bag of Bones once when I was younger. And I, I remember not liking it. Mm -hmm. um, there's some kind of ugly scenes uh, towards the end of the book. And I, I remember reading it probably in the gosh, late 90s, early 2000s. And I was like, well, never going to read that one again. So I really <laughs> wanted to revisit it and see, because um, again, there have been a few books that have really surprised me, like Salem's Lot when I read it when I was a little bit older, where I was like, this slaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd be, so yeah, I'd be curious. So that uh, those ugly scenes later on, those are a real kind of low point. Like what was the high point that stuck out to you from that first read? Like, what did you carry forward with you as like, oh, this was cool about that? It, you know, at the the beginning of the book, you know, anytime that because it was pretty recently when I read it after I had gotten out of high school, and anytime you see those references like to Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, you're like, <laughs> oh, I've read that book. I'm smart too. Yeah, I remembered a lot of <laughs> those references. You know, like, oh, I'm literary, just like <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, that that that's a really it's really tied up with that too. Not only does it take some plot points or kind of setting ideas from that, but also like he straight up references it, you know, uh, alludes to characters and things like that. Um, yeah, this is the like admittedly of the of the books that I included as um, part of the interstitial, you know, uh, season stuff when I was planning this Bag of Bones is the one that I knew that I knew the least about beyond like a synopsis and the synopsis, you know, doesn't read like it's especially inspired. Like, Oh, it's another, it's another writer from Maine. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I just kind of filed it away, you know, for a peek behind the curtain, there used to be a big Wikipedia page that had a, uh, a list of all of the books with dark tower connections. I don't know why they got rid of that article. You can still go to stephenking.com and see like, um, a broader list, but they include some real tenuous stuff. Like apparently any Stephen King book that uh, references the tabloid inside view is part of the, is part, is part of the uh, dark tower universe because that links. Really? All I, don't, I don't think I've ever looked out for that. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is totally, I think you, you can go to Stephen King.com and go to the dark tower section. 
Um, so I knew very little uh, about this, and so I was primed to come into it. Um, and I don't know that I like it very much. Like, there's some cool stuff, but uh, we can we can react to it scene by scene. But I think this is the first uh, one that I've just kind of bounced off of, you know, I guess notwithstanding, like, the regulators, which I found distasteful but still had like a bit of a you know like a, there was there was a gleeful carnage to it you know like that was fun mm -hmm. that was fun this one i don't know how fun it was yeah it's um it, it's funny you mentioned that because it does have kind of a, a similar type of ending to to the regulate you, you know mm -hmm. like where where it's a happy ending but not a happy ending <laughs> yeah. but um whoo yeah like i said the the last pages that we go through to get there are Ooh, those are, they'll make you grit your teeth. Yeah. Um, so this book came out in 1998. Uh, it was one of the last books that King wrote before he uh, got hit by that van uh, and took a little bit of time off. Uh, it's about a writer named Mike Noonan uh, who lost his wife to a sudden freak accident, which caused writer's block for him. And so he goes back uh, to his lake house. He leaves his town of Derry. I saw that. I was like, oh boy, it's a dairy book. No, not really. Uh, it, the funniest he, thing about that, um, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. is he left Derry and found somewhere more haunted and terrifying. That's <laughs> yeah, mind blowing. Yeah, like he just he never ran into any of the any of the cosmic horror beneath Derry. We'll leave, we'll leave that <laughs> yeah. to Bill Denbro. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that 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 is that is very strange. Um, this has something like like man, even even 1123 or uh, 112263 like references how weird dairy is right like the main yeah. character of that goes there and is like whoa something is not right and eventually leaves but old old mike noonan he's like oh good old dairy <laughs> yeah. time to go to our cabin in the woods where <laughs> everything <laughs> is bad <laughs> yeah um around the not at all menacingly named dark score lake um, <laughs> that dark score sounds exactly like my parents didn't want me doing like when I was a teenager, like, are you buying drugs? You, you know, are you making some I'm kind a, of dark score? Yeah. I'm out at dark score lake doing <laughs> stuff. You don't want me to, you know, I'm a rebel. You can't stop me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, we mentioned those connections to Rebecca. Um, they're there and it wildly diverges from that. Um, weirdly enough, just in doing research, occasionally you find King reflecting on his own work and naming his favorite. I think as of right now, his favorite work of his own is Lysi's story, which I want to eventually get to and read because I don't know. Yeah. I want to see what he considers to be his favorite. Um, yeah, for, I haven't read that one either. Yeah. It's, it's part of like that weird, like mid two thousands, like post dream catcher pre under the dome kind of stretch where I gotcha. just, it, it, where stuff just kind of seems to be a little bit wavy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it's like like taking back an X or something, you know. Like I was like, okay, I'll, I'll read Cell. All right. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the Stephen King's taking me out to dinner. Yeah. And, you know, like trying to woo me back. Yeah. <laughs> like, With Cell, I'm not so much ready for it yet. But when, when, once you get to eleven twenty two, then we're fine. <laughs> and then you've then you've shown that you've grown. Um, yeah, but for a long, long time, Stephen King said that Bag of Bones is his favorite or one of his favorites at the very least. Um, I have some real problems with the racial politics of this book, Autumn. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
And we can talk about the particulars of that as it goes, but this is kind of a warning for people who don't like when we bring uh, a kind of a political analysis to the stuff that goes on in King books. Uh, brace yourself for that because I'm going to have, I'm going to have a couple of complaints, even though I'm positive that King's heart is in the right place. The, the kind of death of the author reading of this uh, is not very flattering. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about these tower connections. They're tenuous, but they are there. Autumn, I'm positive you noticed the uh, the many recurrences of 19. Oh, absolutely. Every single one of them highlighted in my book. On yeah. my Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird because this came out five years before Wolves of the Kala. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because that's where 19 and started to get big this really must have been his favorite book i was so excited because just a few pages in um he's talking about like how he's a writer and everything and he actually mentions um i have the quote right here one of the books that kept me from going higher was steel machine by thad beaumont writing his george star yep the um, dark half <laughs> yeah the dark half yep um and imagine my surprise when uh what's his name robert from uh from uh, insomnia shows up just like yeah. for, just like yeah. for a little He's, uh <laughs> I, I i googled it to make sure i was like there's no way well he even says like oh yeah he's going through through going through some insomnia recently <laughs> yeah yeah exactly the yeah. best thing for me about that um dark half reference is and i know that the pages are different between the physical books and the kindle edition sometimes mm -hmm. but it was literally on page 19 oh really Oof. oh yeah i wish someone had been in the room with me so i could high five them <laughs> too spooky <laughs> I've never, I've, so I've never read the dark half. Um, obviously I've got, I've got a big old page in my notebook of Stephen King books and I eventually want to fill it up. Um, or at least check all of them off. I didn't realize the dark half, they made it, they made a, a video game out of that. Really? Yeah. This, this is a little bit off topic. Um, in, in the early nineties, a studio picked up the dark half as a license and they made like an adventure game out of it. So I need to get, uh, go out of my way, get my hands on that and do that on hex crank. Oh yeah. yeah. I hope you get to play as a bird. <laughs> no, I think you just play as the dude. <laughs> <laughs> just soaring around harassing writers. Yeah. It's, it's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> um the the other the other kind of call callback or call out is they do mention Bill Denbro. Like, you know, he he is operating in this in this world. Why are these cameos important? Well, both Bill Denbro and Ralph Roberts um come from tower related books um it's an insomnia to incredibly tower related books um <laughs> yeah um another reason why this is kind of snuck in here before season six is we're going to be spending a lot of time in this area in song of Susanna. um you know not in a tr90 but they mention east stoneham they mention a couple of other towns uh, that are nearby um additionally when stephen king himself does appear in book six uh, he does so at a lake house called Kara Laughs, while this book is centered around a lake a lake house called Sarah Laughs. So it's pretty uh, arguable that uh, Mike Noonan is a twinner for Stephen King, just like he has set up these twinners of the houses that they own. Wow. You know, speaking of all of these people showing up in the book, I, I have to say that um, our, our friend from the Duck Feed Slack, My Sinclair, might have ruined the Dark Tower series for me about a week ago. She had posted that it's um in some ways a lot like fan fiction, and it absolutely is. Uh, I, 
you have all these characters showing up like Sherlock shows up with the guys from Supernatural to fight crime and then <laughs> the doctor from Doctor Who pops in you know we've got all these <laughs> like overlaps yeah um I don't, so I, I always hear fan fiction thrown about as a, um, a derogatory, and I, I, I for some reason I, re- I reflexively, I, re- I reflexively, no, I don't, don't call something I like fan fiction. That's true. I thought you were going to say somebody in Slack called this the Super Smash Brothers of Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Denbro like, joins the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That that that's actually not too bad. But you know, like when you. You get all like the Hanna Barbera characters together for something, you know? Oh, yeah, that, that's basically races. the Dark Tower series. <laughs> yep. Scooby Doo just pops in. <laughs> oh, Stephen King writes a, lot, writes a lot of ridiculous stuff. I don't know if he'd ever put a talking dog in. I'm positive there's been a talking dog in a Stephen King book. There's been a dog giving somebody a blowjob. Oh yeah, there's yeah. Cujo talking about those bees in his head. He's definitely been a point mm, of view character. He yeah. just um he didn't talk so well. Yeah, there's Kojak. He didn't really talk, oh, yeah. but yeah. Huh. We're going to have to look into this theory. <laughs> <laughs> so we can thank Mai for that. Yes, thank you, Mai. Um, <laughs> the touch is present here. The touch slash the shine. Uh, Mike Newton uh, develops a psychic connection with a young girl who is of cosmic important, uh, importance uh, at a certain point. Uh, and also we've got a good old, good old fashioned Lovecraftian horror going on because even though the main threat in the book is spectral, you know, this is a this is a ghost story, right? Um, uh, it is alluded to and outright stated at times that she has been co-opted or kind of supercharged by an outsider. Other things in the series that have been called outsiders are, you know, Pennywise, the Crimson King, etc. You know, so you mm-hmm. could consider whatever is um, in charge of this to be something cosmic uh, from beyond, uh, you know, the ordered spaces, right? Um, yeah, let's talk about what happens in this book. We, we start right off and, um, we open up and we have Mike Noonan and he's watching the security camera footage of his, um, wife in a parking lot who is, has just died. I mean, it's got a clever little setup with it. Um, Mm -hmm. talking about how there was a car accident and, um, nobody noticed that his wife had died in the parking lot because everyone was paying so much attention to the car accident. She just, um, has an aneurysm and keels over yeah uh this is heartbreaking like you, you know as he's watching like there there are people who are trying to get attention you know for her because she collapsed and everybody's like rejecting them because oh my gosh there's this cement truck just ran into this car nobody in the car accident got hurt but no joe as she was running across the parking lot joanna is mike's wife yeah just a, a blood vessel popped and she went down um like mike is you know, eating the candy from her purse, you know, just in this, in this days, this, this sucks. Like this is yeah. a very, very powerful opening to a book. Absolutely. I, I got a little, con- not confused at points, but I, I kept thinking, um, unseemly things, I guess, about the, the dead wife, you know, he's, he's going through her stuff. And for example, he finds that pregnancy test in her purse. Mm-hmm. You know, I instantly thought, Oh, secret affair she died he's about to find out about her secret affairs yeah. and um that that was not the case like throughout there were several times where i was like oh she, she was spotted with a man secret <laughs> affair nope it turned out to be her brother you know like i don't know why i kept thinking joanna was um a dirtbag but um so mike it's it, it's worth pointing out that this is a first person point of view book something the king does occasionally but it's 
you know, not, 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 not normally is mode of communication for these, right? We see all this through Mike's point of view. Mike's kind of a jerk. Um, you know, not in a way that makes him like less valid as a character, but he is very quick to jump to jump to judgment about people, even if he likes yeah. them quite a bit. So, like when you when you when you say like, "Oh, she you know has this pregnancy test," and he is ruling that over in his head, like he's straight up saying, like I think in that opening chapter he says, "You know, I found evidence of her double life um, in yeah. the in this pregnancy test." So, like there there is a certain amount of unreliability to the narrator. That's a fair point. Good. That makes me actually feel better that this was coming from Mike, that it's a Mike problem and not an autumn problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and he raises these, uh, you know, as possibilities before he ultimately decides, like, he doesn't go around and start, like, burning all of her possessions because he thinks she that she was cheating on him. It just kind of falls into the miasma of his four years of grief. Um <laughs> his four years of grief where he just gets away with not working because he wrote, he wrote books and held them back. <laughs> I, I actually, this is, you know, I, I had mentioned some of the stuff like the, the literary tie when I was younger, this was actually probably my, one of my favorite parts of the book. Mm -hmm. Cause the Mike has these four manuscripts that he had worked on over the past few years. And he's, you know, obviously a very successful pop writer, just like, you know, little guy we know named Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not like at the uh, the highest echelon. So he's got these four books, uh, manuscripts that, you know, he didn't want to over publish and publish more than one a year. So he had them locked away in a safe deposit box. So I, I loved this idea that he's got this writer's block and he's able to fake it with his agents and everybody, but knowing that there's an expiration date on that, I thought the tension in that was really good. Yeah. Um, like when they describe him going to the bank safety deposit box and just like, picking up one of these manuscripts and putting a new cover page on it and sending it off like without even looking at it dog <laughs> <laughs> like i just i was i was listening to this and i was thinking there has to be some kind of clue that he's that he's just sending them acorns right um yeah but yeah uh the fact that he has this deadline he thinks that he will be able to break this writer's block that pops up but he's just not able to it's just very it's and, amusing to me that he's able to pull the wool over his publisher's eyes like that oh and the irony is is the publishers and his agents are all saying that these are the best books he's ever written <laughs> oh it like, shows so much it maturity to a new level yeah you've kicked it up a gear <laughs> i'm thinking pulitzer yeah <laughs> like, that's a little bit like someone coming up coming up to you and saying you've lost so much weight what oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah this you know the, the the first portion of this book it's actually very similar to the first part of insomnia um you know just as it chronicles a person after a you know tremendous life-changing loss um there's a little bit of spook -em ups here like he starts seeing visions of joe around the house like he finds uh like like a book that was under her bed her side of the bed and she is like down there she says stay away from my dust catcher um <laughs> you know when he tries to pick it up um, all this stuff is kind of making him unsettled being around this familiar place where she was. I, and again, I think, I think this, the, the front end of the book is, is just great. I mean, there's, there's good tension. The loss is communicated well of his wife. You know, this is obviously a, a pretty happy marriage. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's good. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought his relationship with, uh, his ex, his dead wife's family and everything. I mean, it, it's. These are these are well drawn characters. Yeah, yeah. Like even the brother, um, God, I forget his name, but um, 
the brother who Mike spe- and ends up spending the most time with, you know, he's a real, you know, like you, you get a picture of it. You get a picture of how rambunctious he is. You get a picture of like the dynamic of that family around the holidays, right? Like this is all incredibly functional, um, except for the fact that Mike is coming unraveled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, eventually, you know, with a little bit of goading from Joe's brother, uh, he decides to leave Derry so he can go to their, uh, go to their lake house, um, in this kind of unincorporated, unincorporated area called TR 90, you know, down the TR, they call it. The audiobook is very, is very amusing for this, uh, because Stephen King reads it. So you end up getting a real authentic version of like what he thinks the Yankee accent sounds like. So he goes like full on, just like completely inscrutable dialect when he uh, when he is voicing those characters. I'd watch Stephen King do a one man performance of a lot of his books. I'd love to see Stephen (laughs) King do Dolores Claiborne up on one of those black box theaters, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, have, have, have people in those ink suits just like carrying around the different, like, like different props and things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dragging a well over, holding a, a round piece of paper up so you can like make the eclipse, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Just tasteful, you know, a couple of nights at first to see, see if anybody comes by, expand it to yeah. <laughs> who do you get to be as understudy? <laughs> yeah. Um, He's got all those sons. <laughs> oh yeah he does oh oh owen can step in owen can take one for the team um <laughs> so uh the reason that his house is called sarah laughs is because of this famous blues singer who was from around that area um her name is sarah tidwell and she had an act with basically her entire family going around the northeast um you know very notorious around that time but then notoriously disappeared um, and the town has a bunch of theories that they just kind of like ran off, but you kind of get a sense that mm, there's, that there might be something else here. Um, and guess what there is. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does a really good job. Um, when Mike rolls up on the house of kind of making the house into a character too, you know, like giving the house that name house, that name, Sarah laughs, everything like that. Like the house kind of becomes, uh. A character in the book. God, I feel like I'm those people that used to describe sex in the city, huh? <laughs> Every time I say something like that, I'm like, wow, New York is a character in the every, show. Everybody you know? talks about the sex, but let's take a moment to talk about the city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody no. wants to know how is the city. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I think that's a valid, that's a valid, you know, observation to raise because a huge part of this book is a haunted house book, right? Like, you know, not only does Mike spend time here and see things here, but also, you know, like all of the interactions with the caretaker about the ways that they kind of went in and refurbished this and, you know, the way the ways they did that they did uh, kind of the cleanings and they shuffled a lot of like Joe's stuff away to her studio and things like, you know, you see Sarah laughs as kind of an extension of this community right through the different kind of uh, mm-hmm. personalities that pop up. Uh, to help Mike come back here after a long time away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we get a good sense of that. And we also get a sense that this is a pretty standard uh, Stephen King, kooky Yankee town, right? Um, yeah. You know, it could be a little bit of Northern exposure up in here. Um, <laughs> that is quickly good. 
it does seem, and they, they do mention this later, but when you, you're reading it for the first time, it does seem weird that these millionaire pop writers are in this kind of dinky small town at this lake house, you know? Yes. Um, everybody's kind of like bending over backwards to help him too, you know, because he mm -hmm. had, you know, because he has that money, but like we eventually find out that, uh, Noonan is not even the biggest, uh, the biggest fish in this pond. Yeah. It, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first big incident when Mike is in town is this very tense um, scene where I thought I definitely thought something horrible was going to happen, where Mike spots a young girl walking down the middle of the road because she thinks the white line is the crosswalk and that is safe. Um, and then her mom comes roaring in in a broken down Jeep to come grab her. Yeah. Luckily, luckily, our hero, our protagonist, Mike, had already picked the little girl up and gotten her out of the road because um, it's possible her own mother might have accidentally hit her. She was in such a frenzy. Um, as people around here would say, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And also they were in full view of full view of a garage. So the rumor mill has already started. Yeah. Um, Maddie just about uh, flattened her own kid, uh, Kyra. Um, and these are kind of our secondary leads. Um, as you know, Mike gets more involved in Maddie's life and starts taking not just a shine to her, um, even though his initial impression of her is not very uh, flattering, let's say, uh, but also, you know, starts seeing himself as a bit of a father figure to Kyra. This, I think she's three or four years old, something like that. You mentioned his initial impression not being very flattering. I have like probably four places in my notes where I just wrote things like F you, screw you. Because he <laughs> continuously, because um, Maddie's not very wealthy. She lives in a trailer. And um, I, I guess maybe Mike Noonan thinks like a lot of um, upper middle class millionaire pop writers would think like, oh, I bet her house isn't like, you know, I bet her decorations bad. Like he just thinks she's trailer trash almost every time he sees her. But he, I guess, is almost congratulating himself because he can see what's, you know, that tarnished penny. He can see that copper underneath, you, you know? Yeah, it's real condescending. It's it's real gross and condescending and paternal. Um, and also it's, you know, uh, alongside, you know, calling her trailer trash and making all these assumptions about what her house is like and what her life is like. Like his, his initial assumption is that, like, she's abusing her kid. And one of the yeah. first things that makes him that makes him take a shine to her is when he notices how healthy their relationship seems to be. And the fact that, you know, Kyra doesn't have any, doesn't have any bruises or things. He looks at all of that, makes this kind of derogatory impression of her, but then like starts getting real skeezy about her too. Like, yeah. you know, whatever an older man being attracted to a younger woman happens all the time in real life and in fiction, but it's very hard not to, not to read this as like a, I don't know, like a bit of a fantasy fulfillment specifically because King is writing, you know, he, he's putting his self insert writer character into this and having yeah. having him not get with her but you know kind of head toward getting with her yeah it's like he's like i bet her shorts cost one dollar but her legs look really good <laughs> <laughs> it's just that kind of like you're saying like oh, okay like we, we get it like she's she's poor but like oh she works at the library so she's smart and poor yeah. you know <laughs> she 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 has a vincent van gogh print on her wall and not a velvet elvis like i assumed I don't think he actually says that. He is surprised by the Van Gogh print, but I, th I think he does literally say that. I think he says a Velvet Elvis. Okay, if I forget if there was a Velvet, an actual thing. But, I... but again, 
but again, that's like what all my notes, uh, like every time he does it, I just write like F you. Yeah. <laughs> like eventually their relationship evens out, you know, and it becomes the usual, uh, just kind of like romantic arc. Um, and you know, that uh, the usual arc for a King book where it is doomed, uh, to end horribly. Um, but yeah, I, I, this didn't leave a good taste in my mouth at all. I was happy when Maddie ended up being a little bit more fleshed out as a, as a character, even though she is still very much like a pawn in all of this. Yeah. 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 So blah. Kyra's a sweetie though. Oh, she's cute. <laughs> um yeah she 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 talks all messed up like a little kid would and um yeah just a just an overall sweetie uh Mike, she's one of the first age-appropriate stephen king children we've seen like she's not like little jake from dark tower and she's like <laughs> look at this novel that i wrote it's got a picture of a tower on it yeah <laughs> like you know like she's she's actually like written like she's the age that she is uh-huh yeah, although she is, she does speak in very complete sentences, which I don't, I have no, no three-year-old that I've ever been around has done that. And she could just be a really bright kid. Most of the three-year-olds yeah. I know could be really fucking stupid, too. Yeah, well, I mean, her mom is just poor, <laughs> but she does work at the library. So it evens and out. And she's got great legs. Yeah. <laughs> he, he obsesses about her breasts, too. Yeah. Not, not yeah. Kyra's, but, but about Maddie's. Like, it is always about her small but firm breasts. Like, there, like there's, yeah. a, there's a little bit of, the, of this that, like, sounds like it is literally going to be, like, the lake house or that one Nicholas Sparks movie where that oh, yeah. runaway is guided by her by her love interest, dead ex-wife or something like that. Like, it feels like it is yeah. go, going in that direction. As as she held the food stamps in front of her in her in her clenched fist, I couldn't help but stare at her supple, youthful breasts. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) So, yes, we learned a little a little bit about Maddie. Uh, She is recently widowed. Um, Her late husband was uh, was named uh, Lance DeVore. Um, And she asked Mike not to talk about what happened here notwithstanding the fact that it happened kind of in the middle of town and the garage guys saw it. So it was already going to get around. She says, Hey, this is not really a good time for us to have a, you know, for, for me to have let her wander out. Like the reason Cairo got out was they just had an argument about when they were going to go swimming. Cairo wanted to go to go now. Mighty wanted to go later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are two things that Mike took away from this though. Um, the first is that Kyra's name sounds almost exactly like the name they they were going to give their daughter. Um, him and Joe, I mean, Kaya is what they would have named her. Also, Lance DeVore shares a surname with Max DeVore, uh, this kind of stand in for a Bill Gates-esque figure, uh, this computer software millionaire, uh, from around these parts, uh, who I think his biggest, uh, invention was a program that let people... (laughs) <laughs> that let people do like MS paint with one of those little rubber nub mouses, <laughs> rubber nub mice on a laptop, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a connection. Lance is related to Max as we find out. Um, I want to hear what you think about Max. Cause Max confuses me. You know, they, they kind of set it up and he's um, almost improbably, angry and evil like mm-hmm. the first interaction that mike has is you know he's he's met kyra um it it admired of how how lovely and poor she is and <laughs> then he gets this phone call that night 
and it's um, Max Devore basically just right off the bat, like screaming at him, like, I know what you saw. Y- y- you know, I mean, just kind of grilling him, trying to find out, you know, was she letting that child run in the street? Could she have hit the child? Y- you know, just these questions, I guess, I'm kind of insinuating that she's negligent. And when Mike doesn't play ball, I mean, Devore starts threatening him, like, I'm going to subpoena you. I'm going to, I mean, it's, it's weirdly aggressive and it's a situation where just a simple phone call, like, Hey, I'm just worried about my granddaughter. Like it's almost, but Max DeVore isn't doing himself any favors with this. I mean, I guess the argument is that he's so rich and so powerful that he can just do what he wants. But I mean, flies, vinegar, honey, all that, man. Like just, (laughs) just say, I'm worried about my granddaughter. Was she okay? Yeah. You'll get farther. I just want to know what happened. No, this isn't about me trying to get custody of her. Me, an 85-year-old wheelchair-bound man, trying to get custody of a three-year-old girl from her, from her mother. No, it's not about that. Yeah. No, I, th- I think uh, Mike, even at one point, um, thinks about or muses about you know people who are so rich that they have ceased need- needing to regulate their emotions, right? Yeah. And, and that's very much what's going on with Max, along with some you know, other more deeply rooted um, animus that is going on that we're, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll find out that, that he's been kind of a, kind of a terrible person since small times. Uh, yeah. And he comes from terrible people also from small times. It's real rough. <laughs> uh, yeah. But this is the worst thing that Max could have done, right? You know, if, <laughs> if, if Mike was left to go about his way, he probably would like have seen Maddie and Kyra, you know, down at the library every once in a while, et cetera. No, this pisses Mike off enough to where he decides, you know what? I'm going to use my meager resources, my meager $5 million resources uh, to, you know, put Max in the the ground, basically saying like, if he wants a fight, if he is suing Maddie to get that kid, that is obviously not right. He thinks that he's going to be able to, you know, throw his money around, uh, but that is just not the case. So guess what? You have just made an enemy of a rich bored person yeah that's what I was about to say this is a good life lesson for everybody yeah. like don't piss off like a, a millionaire that doesn't have a lot to do <laughs> yeah he will ruin you <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so this gets them even more closely involved uh maddie is not really in a position to turn him down which adds this other weird power dynamic to their relationship um it sounds like i'm like picking nits at this no my real problem comes a lot later um but yeah that's that's ultimately what ends up going on um and alongside this mike also starts encountering this very strange looking woman named roguette um or roguette in the in the auto book it's 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 roguette but i cannot look at this word and say it as roguette so i'm gonna say roguette um this strange woman who has kind of unnatural looking hair and her rest her she has resting scream face let's say she <laughs> looks like the guy or the thing from the edvard munch uh painting the scream uh, so she sticks out like a sore thumb wherever she goes yeah she's um she's not also not a nice lady no, no. She she asks like weird, sexually suggestive questions. You get the sense that she's there to help spread rumors. You know, the the pervading rumor is that Mike is sleeping with Maddie uh, instead of just you know wanting to sleep with Maddie. 
um, all of this stuff. And this starts a creamy middle of the book where it's hard to really discern like an order of events because it's really, it, it turns into Kramer versus Kramer for a little bit. Like it's about legal wrangling mm-hmm. and hiring detectives to, you know, look into the past of the guardians ad litem that they try to bring forward as just a bunch. The real horror of this to me is how pervasive divorce influence is like just when he gets Maddie fired because he is the sole, the largest and almost sole donor to the library. So like, Hey, the money's going to dry up if you don't get rid of her Bye. stuff like that. Like that kind of power. Yeah, just, so pedally wielded is. Bleh. Yeah. Just so in a, a legal case, he can say, well, I mean, she's an unemployed mother that lives in a trailer. Well, I mean, you're the one who made her unemployed. <laughs> uh, most juries yeah, don't you know. hop more than once or twice. <laughs> as long as you stay <laughs> three hops away. Yeah. then you're then you're fine yeah uh what, what do you it, think of this middle it, section it's it, it's it's interesting it's um the the one thing that i think is a little bit um i i guess implausible is maddie everybody's fallen in love with maddie the son of the millionaire <sighs> the writer millionaire that moved to town the young dashing red-haired young lawyer john storo he's also falling in love with her too like Man, everybody can see the penny under that tarnish, you, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, everybody everybody wants a piece. Um, yeah, it is very strange. Although I was expecting the the love triangle between, uh, who knows, is, is that a love triangle? I was expecting there to be more conflict around the fact that John, that John Starrow, you know, takes a shine to Maddie while uh, Noonan is playing more of a long game about it. Yeah, I thought that they would end up in kind of trying to to woo her, you know, both a little bit more aggressively. Yeah, um, and she is taken, kind of taken out of the equation before that can come to a head. Um, in uh, we're gonna get there, but that like in what is possibly one of the most jarring bouts of violence since uh, that explosion in the stand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not not yeah. not not the big yeah. one, not the nuclear one, but the one in the house while they were planning. <laughs> like, yeah, we just made a committee. We ratified the <laughs> constitution. <laughs> we were working on bylaws. We we were inaugurating a task force, and that's the next step to an action yeah. committee. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're about to take names for a sanitation director. <laughs> Yeah. So while the legal wrangling is happening, uh, Mike is dealing with these hallucinations that he's been dealing with since like his first night, like the first night he could swear that he uh, heard the sound of a sobbing child coming from the pipes. Oh, no. Pennywise is here, too. No, that's just the plumbing work that they did. No, it's actually ghosts. Sarah laughs is chock-a-block filled to the rim with ghosts uh, who are making him taste lake water in his mouth. Um, he gets visions of people drowning. People are talking to him through fridge magnets. It it seems like he's like for somebody that gets like the terror sweats and passes out and hits his head if he tries to look at his old typewriter. Uh huh. It 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 seems like he's strangely unfreaked out about all of this ghost shit that's happening. He initially just tries to cohabitate. Like when he sees that the that they're trying to communicate through fridge magnets, instead of being like, "All right, well, um, I'm gonna put this bad boy up on Zillow, see what we get." Somebody else's problem now. He goes and buys more magnets so they can so they can write better. Yeah, 
<laughs> I, I guess, again, that's what living in dairy for so long will do to you. This just seems like a regular-ass day to him. Oh, he's deranged. Yeah. Oh, he's, yeah. He, he, he never knew what normal was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because otherwise it makes no sense. Yeah. He's he's very placid about it. His initial attack is like, well, um, I have roommates that I cannot see and sometimes wake me up, but blah. Um, this this culminates in a <laughs> in a dream uh, man is a very freaky dream sequence where he has a ghost three way with Maddie and uh, Sarah you know Sarah Tidwell and Joanna at the same time it's like a triptych like a triptych orgy as I think what he calls it <laughs> but um before anybody gets excited I mean. It gets pretty gross. It, it it doesn't go well. It's not fun and sexy. No, no. Like so, maybe at first it is, but it's yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it <laughs> turns out. I think this is one of the first times where Sarah turns on him. Um, it happens yeah. in a big way later. Um, but yeah. During all this, he also manages to pull out his old IBM typewriter uh, and starts writing again. He thinks he's recaptured the magic. Um, I like the twist with that as well. Uh, he's so superstitious about it too. Like, you know, I did all my writing up in that office and it doesn't matter if the air conditioners broke up there and it's, uh, you know, 109 degrees, I'm going to write up there. God damn it. And after there's been all of this buildup where he's not able to write, I mean, he's had to abandon his career since his wife died, the, the juices, they start to flow again. Yeah. It's almost like somebody's he, he's helping writing. him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he's writing a book. Uh, takes place down in uh, down in Florida, where he took a little vacation. You know, it's his usual kind of uh, you know suspense mystery kind of kind of deal. Um, and yeah, he's also doing this. Another thing becomes apparent. Joanna was coming to TR ninety very frequently, uh, and in fact, he talks to Maddie. Uh, you know, as they are mentioning, um, or as they're talking about Max Devore. You know, she says, oh, he always showed up at the baseball games, sitting there creepily and raspy, raspily laughing whenever there was a good play. Um, oh, I saw your wife here. She was with a guy. Uh-oh. Yep. Yeah. Not good. No, except it was her writer. It was it was her brother. <laughs> the same brother who was such a chum before. No, they were. she was here uh, investigating. She was going to do a, uh, a magazine article, an expose. Uh, on the town and the house, Sarah laughs, and about uh, Sarah Tidwell herself, kind of looking into some history that the, that the town doesn't want anybody to know about. And the the town is like um, surprisingly vocal about not wanting anybody to know about it. Like the the caretaker guy, that's such a such a cool guy that uh -huh. is like, oh, we're happy to have you back. Sorry about your wife. You know, so supportive is like, you need to stop. Yeah. Like <laughs> she should like stop she, looking into shit. She she was she was sticking her nose where it didn't belong. Um yeah. yeah, everybody is very quick to, you know, kind of turn against her and make it seem like she is the you know the the, the wife of a local big shot writer who, you know, left here and you know, hasn't been back in years and all of a sudden he wants to write a hit piece about all these good and honest people down here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um so that is another aspect of this. He's relieved to find out that, yes, Joe was actually just pretty much a saint, <laughs> even though he uncharitably thought, oh, who knows? I don't know what I would think in that situation. I especially don't know what, don't know what I would think because I, uh, unlike Mike, have not recently developed psychic powers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah, you and I should just start leaving notes all around our houses just in case we ever, you know, <laughs> die in a parking lot or something that just make no sense. So our loved ones can just pour over them for years. Like, Ooh. what did Autumn mean? Talk to that guy. <laughs> like, huh? When she wrote it on this post-it note and hit it or something, you know, like. <laughs> See, the thing is, my, my loved ones would expect me to gaslight them like that, so. <laughs> so I don't, well, I don't know. another how... one of Cole's patented goofs. <laughs> yep, a patented prank him up. Got us again. Exactly. Yeah. I've hidden treasure somewhere in my new house. <laughs> Gotta it's, solve a riddle. They say it's in the basement, but it's built on a slab. What is he talking about? Get the jackhammer. Oh. Exactly. Well, we got to find old man Cole's millions. <laughs> millions of pennies. Now that, that that would actually sink to the <laughs> sink to the core of the earth. That'd be very funny to do. Um. <laughs> so, so anyway, um. But yeah, he's got this strong psychic connection with Kyra that has a little bit of a sinister a sinister root. Um. It even goes so far as to almost take them kind of todash. Actually, they have a dream yeah. one night where they are both. Um, inhabiting the bodies of people who attended like a 1900 or 1901 uh, fair nearby where actually Sarah Tidwell and her whole band played. There's um there's a there's a moment in there where I just feel really relieved for Mike because after the he and the little girl have had the shared dream, um Kyra's telling about it. He's like, Yeah, she said that she spent all night with you last night and you guys were hanging out, and he's like, Haha, I he must be so glad that like, like Kyra didn't say anything that made it sound like this crazy old man like came to her room like a like a, a pedophile or something. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like, yeah. like wow, yep, we we went to the circus. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so yikes! Just just like Mike is a little bit uh, is is a little bit too comfortable with what's going on at his house. Kyra is completely acclimated to this. Uh, you know, like nothing mm -hmm. about this is strange. She talks about the refrigerator people or the frigidator people. Um, who leave her messages and uh, what's her name? Maddie. Like she's more blase about this than the mom in the sixth sense. <laughs> she's like, like, I don't know what's going on, but I guess I'll just leave you two to your business. Like what? Why would people not like who's spelling this stuff in my house? Like, yeah. I mean, why do these people not care? Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 Mike says, well, maybe she got up and walked out, you know, got up and you know, sleepwalked down down to the fridge and wrote that herself. And Maddie rightfully says, I would be more scared about my daughter sleepwalking out into the street than I would be of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, to be fair, you've you've been through your daughter ending up in the street, so yeah. I yeah. mean, you you do have a a, a good a, like a, a good way to measure that. Yeah, good basis. Um, at the very yeah. least. Yeah. Um, this dream sequence, it, get, it, get, it gets really goofy and kind of goes off the rails a little bit because, you know, not only is Sarah wearing Maddie's clothes and eventually mm -hmm. starts singing these menacing lyrics directly at, um, Mike and, and, and at Kyra, um, the townspeople, they notice that something is wrong here and they start chasing them. Mike eventually goes into this like eldritch haunted house where everything is, you know, trying to attack him and Kyra. Um, it's only by, you know, kind of coincidence that they weren't killed in this haunted house or that they weren't stranded in 1901. Yeah, the book definitely starts getting weird at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. 
just I, I like the idea of the haunted house that is bigger on the inside than on the outside. However, it feels out of place. <laughs> but uh mm-hmm. it, it it's out of place for the first half of the book because not it is not out of place for the for the back half um also bizarre something that is played for the height of horror that just to me seemed kind of funny was the murder attempt that max and Ro- 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 rojette um tried to make against uh against mike this just oh, read that, that, a that's... slapstick comedy to me yeah, that's right. So after um, the court case is kind of resolved and they're like, you know, we're we're not going to give a three year old girl to an 83 year old man that's infirm. You know, we're going to we're going to leave, you know, the child with their mother. Um, they're they're pissed. Max and Rojette are pissed. And mm-hmm. um, they end up like forcing Mike into a lake and then old Iron Arm Rojette, who apparently like would have been a hell of a pitcher is throwing rocks at him so he can't get back to shore and they're mm-hmm. they're trying to drown him yeah max straight up like hip checks him into the water on his on his mechanical wheelchair um i guess yeah. all wheelchairs are mechanical on his electric wheelchair knocks him in rajet like beans him in the head like they're trying to keep him like you know like they're, they're following him up the uh up the lakeside path as he tries to outrun them and they're just like plinking at him to me that re- just reads as slapstick even though it you know reasonably like somebody trying to exhaust you or kill you by a head wound in a lake is 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 pretty bad uh the fact that it is this incredibly old and infirm man and this you know still pretty old and freakish looking woman doing it with stones just feels goofy to me yeah it seems, and I mean, he eventually does just swim away. He swims to a raft, but I mean, it's written like it's a, a very near thing. So they made... I, again, Rojette must have a hell of an arm. Yeah. Well, well Max even, um, even like, taunts her about it, saying, like, you never used to throw like a girl. Um, yeah. uh, Max is a real piece of work. Um, so they made this into a, uh, into a TV movie that ran on, I think, A&E starring Pierce Brosnan, weirdly enough. Um, I kind of want to load that up or find it so I can see this scene to see how they handled it to make it not be ridiculous. So, I mean, not like the part of Mrs. Doubtfire when Robin Williams throws a fruit at Pierce Brosnan's head. I, I think that they might just cut that scene in right like oh we're just gonna splice this <laughs> it matches continuity perfectly. Yeah. yeah just over and over that orange hitting pierce browsing in the head and mrs doubtfire <laughs> yeah yeah and then just put like a water effect you know as it slowly fills up and then r.i.p the end god i always forget that not always forget i forgot that pierce brosnan was in mrs doubtfire That was weird, right? Because that was right around the time that he started playing James Bond as well. Huh. He was he was definitely a, a a hot property for a little while. Yeah, weird. Um, yeah, I might pull up the miniseries just so I can get a sense. Um, it's to, just to see like how somebody would envision this. Regardless, though, um, this attempt fails. The court case is in shambles, and after one final menacing note. From uh from from Max and Rojette, uh Max kills himself. Um, he kills himself and wills Maddie eighty million dollars on the condition that she stays in the TR ninety for over a year. And Rojette apparently leaves town. I mean, 
put the money in my bank account and I'm having armed guards around me every second of every day. <laughs> yep. Build I'll, me a bunker. I will take out loans and pay them back when I get that money because I am positive that this crazy old crank is on the level. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turns out not to be, not to be the case. Um, Mike seems a little bit too genre savvy to take solace in this. Additionally, Maddie is um, kind of bugged by the uh, by, by by the presence of those conditions. John says, "Like, yeah, I can get that taken off. That's unreasonable, etc." Um, but regardless, they you know there there appears to be some kind of ulterior motive. At a certain point, um, Mike starts entertaining the idea of leaving town himself. At which point, the uh, magnets start going crazy. Um, he attempts to talk Maddie into going to Derry with him, uh, but she, um, having gotten her job back and also, you know, knowing that she has this money coming, sees no reason to stay. She has more options than when, than when, uh, Mike offered the money for the legal help. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, she she could offer to pay him, pay him back in a year. Yeah. Yeah. Be like, Hey, thanks for that. Like probably 60, 70 grand you spent helping me keep my kid. <laughs> yep. Here's, 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 here's it back with a little interest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that makes it sound like she's, you know, uh, uh, champing at the bit to get him away. Like she has fallen in love with, uh, yeah. you yeah. know, with, with, with Mike. So she wouldn't, you know, blow him off like that. She just doesn't want to upset her life. You know, uh, she thinks they can be happy here in TR 90, even though everybody in the town is getting like weirdly more hostile. She's getting, uh, uh calls with people calling her the c word and just generally uh menacing her because they believe that um she drove the town's largest benefactor to kill himself um this is kind of where the slide into the end starts picking up so we can start uh kind of revealing some of the mysteries that have showed up here uh the clues in the magnets uh eventually lead mike uh, through a couple of 19-based clues and crossword-based clues to realize that lots and lots of people in the town give their kids C and K names. Um, and it also points them to some fake owls beneath Joe's studio where he finds out uh, some of, or you know, where he finds Joe's notes hidden inside the owl. Uh, the notes about the probable murder of Sarah Tidwell and the subsequent drowning deaths of lots and lots of the town's kids. It's ominous. It makes me glad that um, Mike Noonan didn't die earlier in that lake. Um, otherwise, he'd probably be on the the haunting stuff squad. Oh yeah, he would. Well, he almost he almost ends up being on the uh, on on the living side of that squad in a very creepy yeah. scene. Uh, probably some of the most effective horror in this. Um, yeah. But but yeah, weird coincidences. Everybody's a, a cow or a Ken or a or 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 a, a carry things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So we mentioned that uh, crazy bout of violence and such. Um, well, that happens during a celebra- celebratory barbecue. A storm is rolling in, and basically from out of nowhere, some townsfolk, including a crooked cop on the take, drive their car through Maddie's lawn, injuring John, uh, hurting his arm so bad he's never going to be able to use it again, and just kind of unceremoniously shooting shooting Maddie in the head. Yeah. But it was a big surprise because we had just gotten through this um, very kind of, um, I I don't know, you know, like um, she's wearing these shorts and she's dancing to the radio and none of the guys can take their eyes off of her. And then she gets shot in the head. Yeah. Boom. Dead. Like her left eye is gone. Like it is 
incredibly graphic. jarring. Yeah, incredibly jarring, incredibly graphic. And, you know, her dying words, you know, she is crawling toward the trailer saying Ky Kyra's name, you know, like looking at Mike as best she can, like telling her, you know, protect Kyra. And that is, that is how she goes down. Um, mm -hmm. It comes out of fucking nowhere. And you think that we're on kind of the downward trend. Like we have obviously passed the climax of this, right? Because the main antagonist is dead. Mm -hmm. No, no, we, 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 we haven't. <laughs> um, it's again, I, I say the word heartbreaking on the show a lot, very heartbreaking, you know, because of their psychic link, Kyra actually understands exactly what has happened. And Mike has no ability to hide it from her. Like, even as they walk out, he is trying to, you know, get her to, you know, just like not look, you know, promise to close your eyes. She understands. And he has no way to shield her from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so Mike's trying to take care of Kyra. Cause I mean, that was the last thing that, um, that Maddie had asked him to do, you know, keep her safe. And so they, they go back to the safest place on earth. Sarah laughs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's you know, like maybe the fr fr frigidator people will come back. Um, <laughs> this is where the really creepy thing happens because when he's there, he gets uh, this compulsion. You know, like okay, she's covered in all this, all this mud. She's in bad shape. We need to put her back together. Starts to draw a bath for her, and he gets this compulsion to drown her in the tub and then kill himself. Like, out of nowhere. Like, this is the first time that the ghostly presence has actually started trying to, like, hijack his body. Um, it's only Joe that manages to stop him from doing this. Like, what did you think of that? Like, the way like the way that it just kind of insinuated itself? It, it The way that it was written, it kind of came on so slowly that I was confused. Like, I, I actually thought for a second, I'm like, wait, why does he want to drown her? I mean, it was, like, written so subtly, just like you said. Like, it kind of segued into it. And I was like, wait a minute, what is happening? <laughs> So this isn't a good idea. And then, like you said, you, you start to realize that there's some some outside forces that are encouraging him to to do this. Yeah, it's a real good um, it's a real good payoff for the first person oh. narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super and it, 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 it does start to explain why uh, um, he wanted them to stay in town. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it gets it, it gets even hairier, guys. Uh, so Joe stops it and, you know, gets Mike to realize like, Hey, you know, the, the reason something is, you know, this stuff is happening. You know, the reason that you're kind of at the center of this is that you actually do have blood relation here in the town. He's been puzzling over this weird remark that was made, you know, about this kinship that Max DeVore felt for him. Like, Oh, our great, our great granddads, they, you know, they, they, they worked in the same pit or whatever. That absolutely couldn't be the case. Uh, except for the fact that, you know, through some weird cousin relationship kind of stuff. Oh, he absolutely is. And that is terrible because all of this is because of a curse laid on the town by Sarah Tidwell. And there has never been a more deserved curse. Like, Sarah, I feel you, girl. Like, with what happens next in the book, like, you just curse everybody you want to. Absolutely. Uh, this is yeah. this is very much justified, and it's really upsetting what happens because Mike makes his way to her grave, led by this tree that looks like a pointing by looks like a pointing woman, like he has seen, where he is stopped by several ghosts from these establishing families, and is shown exactly what happens in very very graphic. You know, he's shown it in graphic detail, obviously, because he's shown it as it happened, uh, but also it is explained. This is. 
Um, oh, it, it it makes you sick sick to read. Um, basically, what happens is is the younger Devore and some of his buddies were upset because um, these black jazz musicians had settled into their their main town and the town was accepting them and everything, and they they kind of basically go into to to teach a lesson and they they end up um, gang raping Sarah and then killing her child in front of her. Yeah, drown, drowning the child in front of her and then going back and raping her again. And ultimately killing her when, during this process, really all that she can do is laugh at them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the inciting incident, you know, she she laughs specifically at Max or... I, I can't tell if it's Max or if it's one of Max's, you know, fathers or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, eventually yeah. they're killed and, you know, buried in a shallow grave. Um, yeah, it, this... The description was very hard to get through. Um, yeah, the, and the, a lot of the language used in terms to you had alluded to at the beginning. I mean, it's it's a very uncomfortable scene, and it um, know these things, things like this, have in the past, and we're aware of um, kind of the the history of uh, this nation, et cetera. But it's um, it's it's very uncomfortable to read. Yeah. Because you you know like nothing about it, nothing about that particular scene feels unrealistic. Um, exactly, exactly. I think that's what makes it so upsetting. Yeah. Um, so the curse that is laid down, um, you know, is that all of these people, you know, basically anybody who was involved in the rape or anybody who uh, stood by and did nothing or helped cover it up, you know. As long as they're around here and as long as they're kind of within the, the, the effect of the curse, they will kill their firstborn kid. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they will drown them. They'll feel compelled to give their to give their kids a, you know, a K name because the, you know, the kid who was drowned in that initial incident was named Keto. Um, and that's what's going on here. The reason why Max is going after Kyra is because, you know, she is the firstborn kid of that generation. It doesn't mm-hmm. really doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, you know, uh it, you know and, that that is so far removed. And uh, at a certain point, um Sarah's ghost has lost a little bit of I guess maybe some initial sentience. I mean, she's kind of I, again we mentioned that that outsider um mm-hmm. that she's kind of become something different than just a ghost. Yes. Well, she manifests using that pointing pointing woman tree and like sucks all the vitality of it and becomes kind of corporeal as well. And she's going after mm-hmm. Mike because Mike is, you know, he, he has relation to he has relation to the the, the event. You know, again, we we, we talked yeah. about him having that genealogical connection. Uh, that is why he thought about killing Kyra and killing himself. You know, is because the curse was acting on him. You know, the, the, you know this must happen. You know, just like it was happening with Max, um, and so on down the line. Um, so yeah, uh, because Sarah has you know kind of gone insane uh, over the process of being you know being a ghost and having the run of this a- area, uh, she has to go. Um, Joanna shows up and fights off Sarah's ghost, uh, even with you know even with the help of the outsider. You know, Joanna is. Uh, uh, a solid, a solid enough bro to make that happen. Um, and Mike is a- actually able to, uh, stop the curse by pouring lie on her and Keto's bones. He found their, he found where they were, re- where they were reburied, um, and, you know, gets rid of their remains. 
Joanna's the the real hero of this story. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, she she realizes kind of what's happened, what's going on. She sets up all these like things, you know, like she, she does everything right. She just happens to die in a parking lot before she can fix everything. <laughs> right. She was so close. And even from the grave, she comes back to really work on stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, she, you know, she, she's, she's not here. work. <laughs> she, she's not here for like a tear, a tear, a teary eyed, uh, re, you know, reunion. No, she's here to get stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joanna as MVP. Um, so the bones are now a soupy mess at the bottom of this canvas sack, a literal bag of bones. Um, and Mike returns to the house only to find Kyra missing. Oh yeah. Duh. I left this kid who was hunted by half the town alone. Obviously this would happen. Uh, she's been taken by Rojette. She has not left. In fact, Rojette is still around. Um, and she wants to drown the kid herself, uh, you know, to make this happen, to squelch off the bloodline. Um, and Maddie's ghost appears to protect Kyra and Mike knocking Rojette, who is actually Max's daughter into the lake. Um, yeah, Maddie's pretty, Maddie's pretty cool too. Maddie and Joanna. Yeah. Heroes. (laughs) Tag, tag team superheroes post-mortem. Yeah. And that's the end of the, uh, that's the, that's the end of kind of the, the, the body of the book. There's an epilogue where Mike has given up writing specifically because of how senseless uh, Maddie's death was. So like, Oh, I've written so many of those myself. Um, it makes no sense having been through that to even approach doing it again. So writing's behind him and instead he has turned his attention to making his life work, adopting Kyra, even though, you know, the court system is uh, kind of aligned against him. This was kind of a, a, bummer because i mean like you you see what's happening and he does get to see her from time to time mm-hmm. but i mean like she's literally just going to foster homes and yeah. I, I just feel really bad for her that's awful and she's just yeah. you know it, it's it's crazy because you know she's very young but she is still old enough and she has that psychic ability enough to feel what is happening like i don't get the mm-hmm. sense that kyra even if she ends up with mike has a very you know, happier, fruitful life ahead of her. And my, my question is what happened to the $80 million? Oh, I mean, (laughs) wouldn't Kyra be her heir? Can't she just stay in town for a year with a foster family? I, I'm, I'm $80 million. I'm very happy that she raised that because guess what? The $80 million. Ha ha. That was never going to you. Uh, turns out that Max DeVore left all of his money to uh, a charity that was intended to spread computer literacy throughout the world. <laughs> One last trick. One last. Oh. Fuck you. Oh, fuck you, Max. I you got bored. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure I'm spiking a football. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and and that is a, a kind of a whirlwind tour of that's also of... a bummer. Yeah. Like she stayed for nothing and then she died. And then her daughter's in foster care, even yeah. a millionaire. That's a nice guy. Can't get her. Like, yeah, it's uh, it, it sucks. <gasps> I feel really bad for Kyra. <laughs> and, and, and that's bag of bones. We took a, you know, a real whirlwind tour of this. Um, uh, I guess, you know, I, I alluded to the fact that I was ups- upset by the book's racial politics. You know, there is a reading of this. I think that, you know, portrays what happened to Sarah as, you know, a really awful thing 
you know, like everybody can agree that that should never have happened, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But don't you think that, you know, people are still like just a little bit too upset about that so far on, like, you know, really it's kind of like your anger at, you know, bad treatment, you're kind of living in the past and, you know, you're making a big deal out of this. It, I mean, by making her as the victim of, you know, a villain and making it so racially charged, like it almost sounds like this almost reads a little bit, a little bit like a polemic against any kind of reparations, right. Or any kind of, uh, you know, uh, let's say, uh, compensatory legislative efforts to make up for horrible injustices like happens with her in the past. Right. And, like, can't you just get it's, over it? It's fair that, it's kind of set up like um, she's very arrogant about ta town and um, I, I mean, I, I, again, like she seems very cool and likable and talented. But I mean, like it's I, like you're saying the way that it's written, she, she she doesn't necessarily come off that great in it. None, mm -hmm. of, none of the people involved come off that great. It, it, it I mean, not that great is a real understatement. I mean, they're. they're <laughs> Oh yeah, it's 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 a rough ending to the book. I feel like this could have been a cool, creepy ghost story, mm -hmm. and you you could have just had it be anything but something that graphic. Yeah. So yeah, just uh, I'm a little bit it put me off my beer. I think just that 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 that, that aspect to it. Um, you know, like I said, I believe that Stephen King is his heart is in the right place. This just feels like it is on very hinky and shaky ground to me. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I, I guess kind of from a literary standpoint too, it's a, it's a very sleepy, slow, spooky kind of book. And mm -hmm. when this comes, like when this kind of comes in, it's just such a tonal shift that you're just like, from the moment that, that Maddie gets shot, you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> this is, I mean, it, it's, it, it's like a slow burn that all of a sudden turns into like a forest fire. It's like, if, um, <laughs> Like you're reading like a wind in the willows, you know, and Mr. Toad gets that car and then there's a genocide, you, you know, like, like, wait a minute. I just, I don't know. I like that badger guy. Like what, when did this genocide start? <laughs> this doesn't add up, please. Exactly. Uh, man. Oh man. Yeah. So the, the good news is this is going to make Song of Susanna like feel like a a wild fun joyride. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. I I'm actually, you know, champ Woo! champing at We're the We're going to read something light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> demon babies, demon babies. Whew. Um so I'll let that suffice for my final thoughts on this. Do you have anything else that you want to uh, get off your chest as regards bag of bones? No, I I I guess just I feel like thirds of a really good creepy ghost story and one something real not fun yeah but i mean i i see, I see why he likes the book because I, I like the craft i mean i i see i see why this is one of stephen king's favorite books like the the writing's very good the plotting eh, fine yeah too many villains also a problem yeah yeah yeah, it, you can only have that many villains if you give them jobs and a tower structure. <laughs> yes, some sort of organizational type of thing, a uh, hierarchy. You know, some crimson kings. Yeah. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta have a, a clear like chain of command. Yeah, you have your TikTok man, and then you have your gasher. You know, clearly defined, <laughs> delineated. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> 
So thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next time with from a Buick eight. And then we're going to hit song of Susanna running. Um, Autumn, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at at Mrs. Greer. That's at M I S S U S Greer. Um, you can also find me on the duck feed slack and the radio free Midworld channel. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Cole Ross, that is K-O-L-E-R-O-S-S, and on other shows here on the DuckFeed.TV network. Uh, as for this show, how you can help it out, ratings and reviews are always very nice. And also, I like it when people uh, spread the word. So if you have friends uh, who uh, you want to get into the Dark Tower or uh, friends who like Stephen King but haven't gotten into the Tower and may use these kind of uh, interstitial episodes uh, as an entry point, uh, go ahead and send us their way. RadioFreeMidworld.com. Otherwise, though, keep on listening. We'll see you next week with From a Buick 8. And until then, long days and pleasant nights. <laughs>